Good morning once again. My name is Mike. As Stephen said, I'm on staff here, and I'm excited to be able to come before you and turn to Luke chapter 15 with you. Um, it's a series of parables, and we're going to kick off uh, this new sermon series looking at a pretty familiar story together. Um, and I'm excited to do so, to jump in with you and, and delve in and to see what God would have. Um, so thankful for Barbara and her testimony um, and that amazing video and her baptism. I know um, it, it definitely moved me and moved me to tears, uh, literally. And, um, and I just love what she said. That God said to her, and I'm sure I'll get this paraphrase wrong, but I'm preaching so I get some, some leeway to say whatever I want that you said. Um, and God says something like, I got you. He wrapped his arms around you. You're where you need to be. You're home. Um, those words, you're where you need to be. In his arms, you are home. That should be my outline today. <laughs> it's not, but it should be. Um, it, you are home. We can find home in our Father's arms. And many of us have already. Many of you have come to that point and said, yeah, I know that. I've, I've done that. Some of us haven't. Some of us have not heard that story or have resisted that love and pushed off the Father. If that's you this morning, I pray that you listen um, to what Jesus would have to say from Luke 15 and these, these stories. And, and all the more, if you have, if you're the other part of the room who has heard that story and does know that, that we can be home in the Father's love, I, I entreat you all the more to listen this morning because I know for myself, I, I needed this certainly as much as anyone that we can be home in his arms. Let me pray from my heart real quick and we'll jump into uh, the prodigal son. God, you're so good and you love us so well. And we, we need your love. Not once and not twice. All the time. We need you to wrap your arms around us and pull you close. over and over again. So this morning, God, I just ask that you do that, that you meet us in this place. You show us your heart for the world, for us, and help us to listen. Spirit, may you speak through your word um, and use this to win our hearts again. We love you, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen. In Luke 15, uh, Jesus uses the, the teaching technique of telling parables and most of us know this, but these are, are fictional accounts. He makes up stories, uh, and they're co about commonly occurring events, things that could have happened that the listeners would have said, well, yeah, of course, that makes sense, in order to prove um, a point. These are familiar themes, would have resonated with the audience. And in the beginning of Luke 15, there are some uh, Pharisees, right? And these are the teachers of the law. These are like the religious people uh, the seminarians, the pastors, the teachers of the day. And they see Jesus hanging out with some moral outcasts, some sinners, the, the bad people, the, the, if it's the prostitutes, the tax collectors, like the worst of the worst in that culture. And these religious see Jesus spending time with these people and begin 
to, to grumble, it says, among themselves. This is Jesus thinks he knows what he's doing. He spends time with these people. Jesus hears this or knows this, and he tells three stories. I want to summarize the first two, and then we'll spend some time on the third. He says, there was this shepherd that had a hundred sheep, and one wandered away. Seeing that he had lost the sheep, he left the 99, and he went to go find it. He searched for it. And when he found and rescued this sheep, he brought it back, and he began a celebration. Because the lost had been found. And Luke 15, 6 says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then he goes on immediately after tells another story. There's this woman who has 10 coins. Probably not a super wealthy woman, but so 10 coins, each one of those matters to her, right? And she loses one of those coins. So she begins to just search everywhere. She turns her house upside down. And you ever done that when you think you lose something? Like when my one-and-a-half-year-old daughter takes my Costco card and throws it somewhere, and I'm at Costco yesterday saying, I, I don't know where my card is, but it was in my wallet when I left, and she ate it. I don't know. It's somewhere. And you're just pulling everything off of the cushions and finding money you didn't know you had. So she's, she's doing the same thing. She's turning her house upside down, and she finds the lost coin, and she gathers her neighbors, and she has a celebration because the lost has been found. In verse 10, Jesus says, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. One of these people like I'm hanging out with. And so then Jesus begins this parable that we're going to look at. And we're not going to read the whole thing. I'll kind of jump around. But in Luke 15, beginning in verse 11, it says, And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. So the younger son comes to the father and says, Give me my inheritance now. Which means, Father, I wish you were dead. Because the inheritance doesn't come until the father passes away, right? Right? But he demands his portion right now. And, and in that time, that portion would mean with two sons, the eldest son gets a double portion. So the eldest son would get two-thirds of the estate, and the younger son would get one-third of the estate. And you think back to those times, there's no ATMs, there's no checking accounts, there's no 401ks. Nothing is liquid, right? So for the father to honor the son's request to give up a third of his portions, of his belongings, that's land, an animal, some kind of stock, he had to immediately turn and sell a third of everything he had. In doing so, his neighbors would have said, why, why are you doing this? Why are you selling your stuff? Why are you getting rid of your land? No one does that. And I'm certain he must have had to tell them, my younger son wants his money now, bringing great shame upon himself, great embarrassment. But he does it. He honors his son's request. The father bears the shame and hands it over. And shortly thereafter, the son leaves with his entire inheritance and heads to another country, abandoning his family, and he spends all of it. 
Verse 13 says he squandered his property in reckless living. Other translations say wild living, loose living, foolish, foolish living. King James says riotous living. He blew it on alcohol and prostitutes as his brother outs him later. It's drug, sex, and rock and roll. What happens in Vegas. He moved to Vegas, basically, right? He goes to Vegas and he blows the whole thing. So the next verse says that um, a famine comes on the land where he is. He's lost all of his money. And so he actually goes and, and starts working as a farmhand, as a day laborer, right? So he's hanging out at Home Depot. Going, can, I have, can I have a job? I need help. I have nothing, nowhere to go. And someone hires him in this country to feed his pigs. We know it's a different country because the Jews wouldn't touch. They had no pigs, right? The pigs were a defiled animal. You could not eat the meat. You could not touch them. And yet at rock bottom... This younger son finds himself feeding the pigs, defiling himself constantly. And so I grew up in the church, and this is the, this is the moment I can picture most vividly from this story. And I always pictured him like with like five pigs, which I'm sure if it was his job, it was a lot more. But he was laying down in the mud, and there's like the barnyard, like Charlotte's Web, kind of. And it's all muddy and dirty. And I just always pictured the pea pod, anyone? Maybe the corn cobs, you know? And he's literally looking at this old and rotten pea pod on the flannel graph. And he's like, that looks really good. I want to eat. I'm, I'm jealous for that. So it dawns on him. Maybe if I go back to my father and humble myself and beg his forgiveness, he'll take me as... A servant. I, I won't even go back and ask to be a son. I've already written him off. I have sh- publicly shamed my father and my family. What if I just go back? So he takes off and he starts going there. Let's look at verse 20. So he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So as the son is approaching the father's home, there's this picture that in order for his father to see him, we can kind of read in, his father was looking for him, was waiting for his lost son to return. Months, maybe years, the written off, dishonored, ashamed father is desperate to see his son again. And again, in this highly patriarchal society, that's not normal. When his son asked for the money, he could have disowned him immediately. When he came back, he could have disowned him completely. And yet he runs. And again, this is pretty well-trod ground for a lot of us. In that society, men didn't run. Middle Eastern, patriarchal, I don't, men don't do that. They are respected. They do not run. They walk. Children run, but it says, Jesus says, the father runs towards his son, and he embraces him, and he kisses him, this picture of compassion and immediate reconciliation. So the son is stunned. He is not expecting this at all, and he's like, this is going way better than I anticipated. But he still says in verse 21, and the son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet 
And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. He had no shoes. This robe, the best robe in the house, would have belonged to the father. He says, go get this stuff, this, these symbols of belonging in my family. For my son is back. And he throws this huge party, right? I mean, this is like a, a once-in-a-decade type party. You ever go to a 50th like wedding anniversary, and you're just like, wow, they put all of the stops for this. And it's awesome, and you just get caught up in this gigantic, extravagant, super expensive. You're thinking, how much did this cost? Or you ever go to a wedding like that, and you're like, oh, my God, I had no idea they had this kind of money. That's what this was, Right? This story is often re- referred to as the prodigal son. And growing up, I always assumed, even until a few years ago, that prodigal meant the son who comes back, right? That's what it means, right? It's not what it means. Prodigal means extravagant, like wasteful spending. And so it's portrayed in many of the titles in our Bibles as the son who was wasteful and how he spent his inheritance. But Tim Keller in this book, who I'm leaning on much, uh, wrote The Prodigal God. The extravagant, wasteful father. Which is our first point. And it's a very long point. So you can shorthand this if you want. The younger lost son needed the great love of the father. The younger son needed the love of the father. The younger lost son needed the great love of the father. Yes, the son wastes his father's inheritance, wastes everything at Vegas. And yet it's the father who wastes so much more, so much more extravagantly on his son. The boy is the picture of rebellion, right? He's the picture of lawlessness. That when we're dead in our sins and transgressions, without Jesus, there are these periods in our life, maybe before we came to know the Lord, Maybe after. When we say, I don't want those rules. I don't need that. I don't need your advice, Dad. I don't need the constraints of the man, of church, of government. I don't need you to tell me what to do. I'm going to do it. Um, The other day, uh, my daughter, Winnie, again, a little less than two years old, was pressing the buttons on the the window air conditioning unit. We're trying to get her to see if she pronounces buttons. I want to press the buttons and she's always pressing him. And, and Casey and my wife came over and said, Winnie, like, I, I don't, I, listen to me. Do not press the buttons. And Winnie looked up in typical younger son language and said, no, me, listen to me. <laughs> me, listen to me, you know? And I'm like, how do you know that? Um, the sin is written on your heart, my little sweet girl. But isn't that this boy right here? He's probably like a late teenager, Me, listen to me, Dad. I want my money now. I want to press the buttons. Um, That's the picture. That's us. That's what we do to God. That's what we do to our parents. That's what we do to our spouses, to our friends, to our boss at work. No, me, listen to me. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm living for me. And yet the father wastes his love on his son freely. He does not hesitate clothes him with his own clothing 
welcomes him back, runs to him, kisses him, embraces him, brings him in and says, you're home. Right, Barbara? This is what you need. You need me. You need my love. But the cool thing is, because that would be the story, there'd be a celebration, but like this parable, unlike the other ones, doesn't stop there, right? We start to look at the older brother. And there's a quick note that's worth pointing out. Unlike the stories before where Jesus details there's something lost, someone goes to find it, that's the thing that's different, it gets found and there's a celebration. No one went to go after the younger son, right? The shepherd went after his sheep. The woman goes after her coin. And in this story, whose job was it to go after the younger brother? His older brother. It's his job. That's his responsibility. But he doesn't do it. He's like the Pharisees sitting there grumbling like, look at that guy. Look at that little rebel. I'm so sick of his, I'm so sick of him. I'm not going after him. Let's look at verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, your father has killed the fattened calf, and because he has received him back safe and sound. But the older brother was angry and refused to go in. (laughs) The older brother, the faithful one, classic older sibling, right? Most of us either are that person or have that person or know well that person, the dutiful older sibling who always does the right thing, the self-righteous, the pharisaical. He stayed home. He did not dishonor his father. He remained obediently. He was the obedient one in the fields and he hears this party and he's like, what? what's going on? So the servant tells him of this great news, right? And his anger begins to boil up inside him. And self-righteousness. I mean, it's like bile in his throat. And you just see him trembling. So now it's the older, obedient son's turn to shame the father. The father comes out and begs his son. That's not done, again, patriarchal society. He says, son, please come join us. We're celebrating. Your brother is back. And his older brother disgraces him. Verse 29, he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I had never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, when he came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And you can feel the condescension. And yet, he has a point. When the younger son left, all of the land, all of the property, all of the inheritance, the robe, the ring, the shoes, the fattened calf, every ounce and drop of wine that was spent on celebrating this son rightfully belonged to the older son because he already gave up his inheritance. Who does the father think he is to spend what belongs to me? Do you ever think that way? And yet with kindness, our extravagant father comes to the older son and says in verse 31, Son, 
you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. This, your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The father meets the vitriol of the older son with love, and he wraps his arms around him. And he says, you're home. This is what you need. Kind of hear him saying, stop comparing yourself to your little brother. The youngest, youngest lost son needed the great love of the father, and the older lost son, point two, needed the great love of the father. The younger son is rebellion. The older son is self-righteousness. But it's interesting, right? We see this love the father gives. He wraps his arms around the son. He goes, please come celebrate with them. And yet Jesus stops there. He doesn't finish the story. That's it. The real audience, obviously, is the Pharisees. The sinners that he was hanging out with needed to hear this story about the father's love for the younger son. And yet, as he breaks pattern in in this third story and focuses on the older brother and the older brother's resistance to the love of the father, it's the Pharisees the grumbling Pharisees who needed this. Jesus sets in contrast, right, the way of lawlessness, of rebellion versus self-righteousness, of the idol of obedience. Each son rebelled. Each one was very bad, one by living very bad and one by living very good. Both were lost sons. The younger brother represents lawlessness. He rejected convention. He rejected religion. He rejected culture. He rejected all those boundaries. The older brother mimics religion or conformity. His obedience came from self-centeredness. Two sons, two opposing lifestyles, and they both needed the love of the father. Tim Keller says, older and younger brothers are both exiles trying to come home to hope and joy, seeking it in separate places, each their own way, but they cannot find home. And John Piper said this week in a tweet, I know that homecoming is a great joy for both. So I've spent the last few weeks reading this familiar parable over and over again. Again, I think most of us have heard this, And maybe you've heard this talk and have read this book. If you haven't, read it. It's really good. But even so, my my heart was still numb, and I was working on this last night, just trying to arrange it right and get the details and whatever, and it was about 10 o'clock, and I just, I was like, I need to sing. Because for me, when I sing, I believe. I believe the gospel when I sing. And so I had to leave home because my daughters were asleep. And I came down to the office around 10 o'clock last night, and I just started to sing. And I'm upstairs singing, Come Thou Found of Every Blessing, and I I sing this, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, take and seal it, seal it for thy firm love. And as I'm singing that a few times and just wrestling with it, and as my heart is opening up, um, this kind of hits me. I'm like, wait a minute. These sons 
that sheep, that coin, these two sons already belonged to God. The sheep were the property of the shepherd. The coin was the property of the woman. And the sons were the sons of the father. That, I don't know, for me, that just kind of cemented the point that we still need the great love of the Father. All of us. Like, we all still need it. Right? So again, if you've never heard this before, I hope this is compelling and moving your heart and that you're thinking, like, I want that love. But if you have heard it before, I, I think more importantly, you still need His love. Um, we're beginning a new series, um, and we're talking about this idea of enjoy that Stephen said. And, and the reason I think that this is so important, the reason that we talked about this and came up with this idea, is that in our society today, we have skewed almost everything into these two polar opposites. And often they are rebellion and self-righteousness, but not always. Sometimes they're just right and left, Right? And as Christians, if you follow Jesus, it is so critical that we are willing to find our home rooted in the love and tenderness of the Father and not these positions. Taking positions on issues is not wrong. Having convictions and philosophies is not wrong. Demonizing the other side Failing to listen is. We have this tendency, and we're trained to do this by our culture and by our media, and sometimes maybe even here in the church, to look down on others and justify ourselves, our worth, our worthiness, our wisdom, our perspective, our track record, because we've so built up our self-identity in what we have done, or maybe the victims that we are that we've not been able to do, that we've moved away from the Father, and often we don't even realize it. We're angry even that God doesn't notice how right we are or does not help our side prevail. I deserve this. I've earned it. It's so easy as San Diegans to look down our nose at the poor, at immigrants and refugees. To polarize every viewpoint without actually listening to truth behind it and without getting into it. But between Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter and All Lives Matter, all we don't listen. We say, no, this is right and they're wrong. We don't stop and actually like listen and say there are clearly issues here. End of sentence, right? There's clearly something wrong right now and we need the Father's love to help us. We just demonize and we just build in and dig our trenches and say, no, but they're wrong and I'm right. Never Trump, 
Never Hillary, never this, you're wrong. Look what I've figured out. Look who I am. And we stake it all on our identity. And sometimes we even try to justify it like, because this is what God said. And it has nothing to do with the love of the Father. Um, For my story personally, when I was growing up, my mom says I prayed to receive Jesus when I was young, four or five. And I grew up, and I was a good kid, believe it or not. I never got in trouble. Ever. Little older brother tendencies as a younger brother. And, uh, but I started going to public school in junior high, and I began to get really good at this thing of living two lives. And I was one kid at home in front of my parents. I think I said the D word one time in front of my parents. The D word playing Nintendo. <laughs> That's a true story. And they're like, Michael. And I'm like, I don't know. It just came out. It'll never happen again. And it never did. It never happened again. But I had the foulest mouth at school. I would go to youth group every week. I was the kid at church up front like, Jesus, I love to sing even then. And yet I had this completely separate identity. It was a marked difference. And, and towards the end of high school, I remember just feeling like this is not okay. And every summer camp, I'd never do it again. And I'd come back and I would do it again. And, um, and then I was about 17, and it was summer before my senior year of high school. And there was this theological conversation of the day that my youth pastor is a part of, whatever. And the idea was that, like, I had uh, asked Jesus to be my Savior, but not let him be my Lord. And theologically, I don't know anymore about that. But still, there was a point that, that God used that I had accepted the gospel, but I didn't, like, always care. I didn't, I didn't let God, and couched in the phrases um, from Luke 15, um, I was not completely open to the love, of, the radical love of the Father. And even more, I was not pursuing his love again and again to wash over every area of my heart and life again and again and again. Because I think our hearts are, are like this. I think our hearts are like our homes where you can keep cleaning your house, so I hear, and you can clean and yet the baseboards kind of tend to get this like layer that you're not really, pay- I'm not paying attention to. Or like in your car, you ever notice like your cup holders or like those little pockets in the doors? You ever look in there and you're like, what is that? It's like a science experiment all of a sudden, and the rest of your car is kind of clean. How did that happen? Um, I feel like our hearts are that way. And these ideologies and our behavior and our identity can, can be that way, right? Where we've not, again and again, come to the table and come to the cross and said to Jesus, like I was challenged to do when I was 17, Here's my heart. Here's my mind. Here's what I think is true. Take it. I surrender to you. Be my Lord. Wrap your, let me find my home and identity in you, Jesus, in everything. Because when we don't do that, again and again and again, it's called rehearsing the gospel, Right? And I know for me, I love communion. I can come to the table and be like, yes, I get to start over. Like, blank slate, start over. I have the righteousness of Jesus. He loves me. These are all true things. These are all good things. 
And yet I can maybe not take smaller areas that I consider smaller, maybe bigger areas and issues of identity and submit them to the Father. It's not that big of a deal. It's just a small lie. It's just my taxes. Everyone does it. I'm just flirting. It doesn't matter. It's just a little porn. It's just, you know, I got a little drunk. We all do it. I deserve it. It's a hard week. They'll never know. That's rebellion. And yet, the other side is like, they don't know what they're doing. So many times on social media the last couple of weeks, look at these idiots. The hatred and the vitriol from Christians towards other Christians talking about things that need to be talked about. Rebellion, younger son, self-righteousness, older son. The gospel does not just say, come into the party, you're loved. It does say that. But it says we need to keep going back to the Father and giving him those dark corners, the dirtiness in our hearts, in our minds, in our soul that we are unwilling to let go of. We need the love of the Father. Whatever side you're on, whether or not you've come to the Father before, we need the radical love of the Father. And we need to be open to his radical love transforming every area of our life. I believe that's the message of the prodigal son or the prodigal sons or the prodigal, wasteful, extravagant God. There's room for you at the table. It's always there. Will you start over? These next coming weeks, will you look at these ideas that we're going to present and, and maybe be honest about, you know what, I, I do, I am, I am willing to go down that road or go down this road. I judge others when they don't. Or I don't listen. I don't care what I'm supposed to do. I rebel. Will you open your heart today in these coming weeks to listen to what does the gospel say? What does the transforming love of the Father say about this? And will you just surrender like I did when I was 17 and say, God, here's my life. I know I, I needed it last night again. I need it again this morning. Let's go to the Father and ask him to wrap his arms around us again. Father, you're so good. Thank you. Thank you again for Barbara, for leading the charge and giving us words to say. You are a loving Father. You have wrapped your arms around every one of us. We belong to you, but we fight it and we forget. Remind us today your goodness, Lord. Help us to believe in the gospel and help us to be willing to see our heart attitudes, our justifications, our self-righteousness. May we not be like the Pharisees. Jesus, thank you that you are not pharisaical to the Pharisees like I am, that I judge judgmental people, which makes me worse. Thank you for that. Thank you that you did not let us abandon ourselves 
to Vegas and abandon you. And thank you that when we do, you do go after us in the cross, that you did pay the price for our sins to give us righteousness and new life. I need it so much, Lord. Thank you for your heart for us. Thank you for being such a good, good father. We pray in your name. Amen.